Guess what we actually have this week? Live racing. The Schaefer Oil Tar Heel Invitational presented by PitStopUSA.com at Tri-County Speedway in North Carolina is this week. Thursday night, it's live on Dirt on Dirt and on Flow Racing from one of the most exciting tracks in the South, Tri-County Speedway. 4000 bucks to win at least. It could end up being more, but right now it's 4000 Shane Clanton, Brandon Overton, Tyler Erb, Ashton Winger, Hudson O'Neill, all of those guys racing actual race cars this week. Not sim cars, actual dirt late models at Ray Cook's Tri-County Speedway. And you only have to be a subscriber to DOD or Flow Racing to watch it. No pay-per-view, just a subscriber to either one of those websites, and you are golden. Thursday night on DOD, it's going to be huge. Real racing, not sim. Again, I'm going to say it. No video games. Real race cars, some of the best late models in the United States, and we've got it live on DOD and on Flow Racing. It's going to be on both websites for both subscriber bases, which I think is a really, really cool move by the folks at Flow. Let's get to it with Bill Fry, but don't forget, you can watch Real Race Cars Thursday night. No spectators allowed in the crowd, all social distancing measures being observed, Ray is going above and beyond which means you can only see it if you're on DOD or Flow Racing. Let's go, Bill Fry. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is the Rigsby Report brought to you by our good friends at Kaiser Manufacturing. Now, normally, I rant about something in my opening before I get to the interview. This week, I'm just I'm almost in tears over the fact that we have real racing happening. I, I can barely contain myself. I think we all sort of knew there would be these little pockets of races that would be unsanctioned that would run and just sort of pop up out of nowhere. But people don't really realize how much work this event at Tri-County was this Thursday for Ray Cook and all the precautions that he is taking and the government officials that he's talking to and and the OKs that he's had to get, and he's done a really good job of getting. At the time of me recording this, which I did on a Friday afternoon, there are talks of some other events popping up on top of Rays that's this Thursday, events we might be a part of, but nothing is finalized yet. So if by chance you're listening to this on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday and and one of these other two events have popped up. Uh, I apologize for not mentioning them, but yeah, the uh, the pop ups the pop ups are going to start coming in dirt late model racing and all racing. You saw it this past weekend with Park Jefferson with uh, with a race that Speed Shift had on and a sprint car race that Terry McCarl and those guys did. It's it's going to happen more and more. And you know, a lot of people have been asking me, how do you feel about real racing? How do I feel about a return to real racing? And I'll say the same thing I said this entire time. As long as all the guidelines and the parameters are being followed, obviously no fans. I do not think you can have fans at any race right now. There's proper social distancing, and everybody that says it's okay has said it's okay, and really everybody's going above and beyond and they're being safe. I think it's doable. I don't think we should rush back to it, uh, but I like to use the word doable, and I think that's what Ray Cook is doing at Tri-County, having a doable race. Now, I don't think... Eldora should open the gates with 25,000 people at the Dream right now. I do not think that should happen as we sit here in late April and early May. Um, you know, Terry McCarl sprint car race in South Dakota, same thing. It needed to have no fans. I think if Terry and those guys had said from the beginning, hey, no fans, I'm not sure it would have caught the national attention that it did. Um, but if you can do it right, let's slowly, slowly start to open the hatch to real racing over the next 30 to 60 days and see what we've got. You know, and one other thing on that, when this happened back in March, in no world did I think we'd be talking about not having major races this year. By that I mean everything that kind of happens Memorial Day on, you know, Eldora, PDC, North South. I never thought we'd be talking about that. But yeah, I do think it's a possibility now. I have talked to enough people at enough racetracks to know that we got a ways to go here, man promoters at all of the tracks I've talked to of those major venue events, those summer money month events, they're worried. And there's almost more uncertainty right now than there was back in March. Because in March, there was no chance we weren't having these big races. Right now, these people are worried. We're going to have to have, or I should say, we're going to have an interesting month here because this might not 
just be about losing the, oh, it's typical rainy March and April, we lose those anyway. The entire Dirt Late Model calendar, from what I'm hearing, could look very different. I really did not think that was going to be the case, but as we sit here in late April, closing in on May 1st, I think we are going to lose some stuff that I did not think it was possible that we were going to lose. Uh, I'm not trying to be a harbinger of bad news, but just be ready for that, okay? I I think that is coming, and I did not think that was coming uh, 45, 46, 47 days ago. So this interview with Bill Fry is incredible, so let's get to it. Before we get to Bill, Bomb Chevrolet Buick is focused on treating customers right from the start. Since 1928, Bomb has been guiding Central Illinois drivers through the car buying and servicing process, helping you make the right choices for you. Visit us today and be treated like family at Bomb Chevrolet Buick, who will be our official live broadcast vehicle provider this year. Assuming we get to actually have live broadcast this year, we're going to have one this weekend. It won't require a bomb vehicle, but uh, Janelle and everybody over there at Bomb has been awesome. If you're in central Illinois and you want to buy a car, do it at Bomb Chevrolet Buick. I had a feeling that Bill Fry would be a good interview. When I was working on the who do I want on the Rigsby Report list, Bill Fry was very high up there. Then I started doing all my pre-calls where I talked to people that know Bill to get a little research on him. And it became very obvious very quickly that this was going to be really good. Joining me now on the Integra Shocks and Springs Hotline, the one and only Bill Fry. Bill, it is Friday morning at about 10.15 Central Time. What is Bill Fry doing on a Friday morning at 10.15? I was cutting some radiator hoses down to fit in a 35 Ford sedan of Mike Scott. (laughs) <laughs> that uh, has a 351 crate motor in it and getting ready to scale a 1,250-horse Chevelle drag car. <laughs> you know, just your standard Friday morning, right, in the Fry household? <laughs> Pretty much. That's, that's an average day here. That could be any day. We're going to talk about those those kind of vintage classic cars a little bit more because I want to dive into that. Typically when I do one of these interviews, Bill, and I've had Jeff Purvis and C.J. Rayburn and, and just some Doug Bland and some really important people in the history of our sport on, I have a good idea of where I want to start. But when I got like, I'm like, okay, where do I start with, with Bill? I had pages of notes on what where I wanted to start with you. I didn't know where to start, so I'm just going to jump right in. You left racing about 10 years ago. You kind of got out of full-time late model racing. A lot of the questions I got from people are, what has he been doing since? What has Bill Fry been doing since? So in this last eight to 10 years, Bill, what have you been doing? Um, I've got my pilot's license. I've got 250 or 60 hours in a Cessna. Um, I really enjoy that. That's a, that's a challenge every time you come to land. <laughs> so, uh, and and my, my instructor, finally, after about, 60 hours of instruction, he looked at me and he said, Fry, you just may be a little bit of a cowboy. <laughs> I could have told him that after one hour of instruction, I feel like. <laughs> he said, "He said I don't think you're going to tear nothing up, but you're just not the smoothest landing airplane. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get it on the ground, but it ain't pretty sometimes. Uh, have you ever had a scare landing that plane or no? No, no, I did. Landing's not too bad. I haven't scared. I mean, I was... I was you know, got a little crossed up and stuff a time or two landing, but nothing bad there. But I did make the mistake. I was flying to Lebanon to uh, scale a new XR1 for Raymond Merrill. And I got in a plane, and that weather was a little iffy, and I took off, and I was about 2,000 feet, and couldn't get no higher. And I was, I went through a little cloud and I could see clouds, you know, just kind of scattered clouds. And I thought, well, I'll go through this other one here. I can see it. I'll just fly through it. But when you fly through a cloud like that, everything just goes great. Yeah. And I went into it and I'm flying and it's like, I've read all this stuff about instrument flying and stuff. So I thought I'm okay. <laughs> and I flew about a minute and it's like, I'm not coming out of this cloud. <laughs> So I thought, well, I'll just bank around 180 and fly back south, and I'll fly back out of it. I'm banking around, and I'm going, and next thing I know, I hear the plane. It's like, and I look down, and I'm losing 1,200 foot a minute. Oh, no. And you don't realize it. It's like it's like spatial disorientation is what they call it. And of course, I pulled right back up, and I was over the mountains up above Mountain View, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of 2,000-foot mountains up there, 1,500-foot mountains. 
So I pulled up, and it's like, man, I almost stalled at pulling it up so hard. And it's like, Fry, settle down. This ain't nothing. All you got to do is watch the gauges and fly this thing out of here. And I got it up, and I got it level back about 2,200 feet. And I'm flying along, and I think, well, this is all right. I'll come out of it a little bit. In about five minutes, I look down, and the <clears throat> the the turn coordinator is about 30 degrees. I'm flying at that much of an angle, and I still think I'm flat. Oh, jeez. In about five minutes, I come out of the cloud, and it's like, geez, that scared me, and I, I'm not going to do that again. And I flew back, and I landed at uh, Heber Springs and drank some coffee and looked around. It's like, this ain't getting no better. So I flew back to Searcy, and it had like a 900-foot ceiling by the time I got there. And I got on the ground, I got in my Corvair and drove to Lebanon, Missouri. <laughs> but that, And then later, I was at a safety meeting in Little Rock, and they said, uh, they said, uh, what is the odds of a pilot without instrument rating flying into the clouds, flying into an instrument rating condition? What's the odds of them surviving? And they said zero. Oh, man. They said they'll never make it out. And I held my hand up and I said, I got to tell you my story. <laughs> and then they all said, man, so you're just the luckiest guy we ever met if you made it out of that. And it's like, man, all you got to do is watch them gauges. She said, yep, yeah, that's really hard to do. Well, I didn't expect this interview to start with a death-defying flight story. I can, t- I can tell you that. But other than – and so we can – Go ahead. If you ever want to take a take a trip in a plane, yell at me. I'll come eh, I don't, Bill. After hearing this, I'm not sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I I might drive down to see you in, in uh, Greenbrier rather than flying. So, uh, other than uh, other than flying, though, what else have you been up to these last ten years? We're gonna talk about your car rebuilds um, and stuff. But what what else you got going on? Um, I rode hair scrambles for about five years. Um. I really, I, I really forgot how bad I missed riding a dirt bike. That's yeah. the most fun I can have. But the, the racer would take over in me. Um, I'd go and I'd think, I'm just going to go out and ride and be okay. And, you know, not, not trying to, and then I'll see somebody. And it's like, you got to catch them. And you got to <laughs> pass them. And, 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 and I guess just being a competitor, too, it would take over. And by the end of the day, I'd be so sore and wore out. I'd be two days I couldn't walk hardly. Yeah, that's what I've always heard about bikes is they just beat your body up so much. And you're a bigger guy, right? So that's got to be – I would imagine that was hard on you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was – I really love it. But uh, I won the last one I was in. Last two I was in, I rode a – I won uh, the over 50C class, and then I rode a, a 175 vintage bike. I've got an old 74 Can-Am. And I won it. I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to quit this on a winning note. I didn't do racing this way. I'm just going to quit right now. <laughs> and I still ride quite a bit, but I don't. I don't get to race. I, I I started a month ago. They had one over here right before the coronavirus. They had one about 45 minutes from home. I seen it on Facebook Sunday morning. I thought, man, I ain't rode in a year. I'm going to go do that. And ran to the shop, got dressed, ran to the shop, poured gas in it, and the gas ran right out on the ground. The gas tank was busted, and I thought, this is God telling me I need to go to church, not to a hair scramble. So I just shoved the motorcycle back in the corner and went to church. If you've ever had a sign, that was the sign, wasn't it? <laughs> yep, that was my sign. You left, you know, you leave late model racing, by all by all accounts, mainly in 2010. You did a little bit in 11 and 12, but basically 10 years ago. What was it, Bill? What made you say, you know what, enough's enough, I'm, uh, I'm done. I'm done in late model racing. Um, I still had everything in 12, I think. It might have been early 13. Um, it was, it was, because it was after Carol died. It was, it was uh, for the Bad Boy 100 and 13, I believe. I got the car ready, and I told Johnny Verdon, I said, let's go race this. I said, I don't expect to win. I said, man, just, just go and let's just go and enjoy yourself. Yeah. And we went up there, and we got there, and I timed in like 60th. Terrible. <laughs> um, and I come in, and he said, what are we going to do now? And I said, well, I said, here's the deal. I said, my head ain't where it needs to be to race a dirt late I said, I don't know if I got too much going on in my world, if I'm too old, but I said, I'm not mentally capable of driving that car in the corner like I need to. And I said, uh, right now we're going to get ready, start a heat race, see if we can pass a car or two, eat some barbecue and go home. <laughs> and we did just that. 
We ate some bar, and I didn't even go back second day. I told him it wasn't going to need going back. It wasn't going to need me ever going to another late model race. Was that hard to admit to yourself? Because, you know, you see these guys hang on till they're 60, pushing 70, some of them. How hard was that to admit to yourself, the ultimate competitor? It was hard. Um, I mean, we've I've raced modifieds five or six times a year, every yeah. year since for a guy here and he's a great guy and he wants to race about as much as I did and we won five or six or ten features and I enjoyed it um, but it's just not worth the effort yeah. I told him I said you, I don't even really work on the car and I said it ain't worth the I said what well, I said it's just not worth the effort to me so uh, I told him at the end of last year that I really didn't want to race if he wanted to find somebody else, that'd be fine. He said, no, man, when you quit, I quit. And I said, no, nah. let's not say it. Yeah. And then about three days later, he called me and said, you want to go to that big race of baseball? <laughs> and we thought about it, and finally, we like the second night, I said, if it rains out tonight, we'll go tomorrow night. And it didn't rain out that night, so I said, man, there it is. We're not going. Yeah. You mentioned your wife, Carol, who passed. Well, what year, uh, Bill, for the folks at home that might not know, what year did your, your first wife, Carol, what year did she pass away? Uh, 2013. 2000, so right about, and I was kind of, you know, obviously I, I might be taking a step too far in my mind here, but, you know, it was about that same time you kind of step away from racing. Just, I had met Carol a few times back in the day, just a tremendous woman, always treated me fantastically. You know, I know it's a tough question, but but how hard was that on you? Not just racing, but just be honest. I mean, losing her at that time, I'd imagine that that was an awful lot going on in your world at that time, losing somebody like her. It was, and um, I mean, that had been a seven-year battle. Yeah. So it wasn't, I mean, it was, I could see it coming. I don't think she could, but I could. And it was really the... The hardest part was me overcoming the fact that I've got two daughters i got to raise. Mm. And I tried, I thought, and I'd wanted to quit two or three years before. I tried to quit in 2010. Or she even actually talked to me about it. She said, you need to quit. And I said, no. I said, my kids like going to the races. That's what we kind of do together. And I said, I think I need to keep racing. And she said, kids like doing that because that's all we do. She said, uh, she said, it's just what we do. So she tried to get me to quit then, and I really wished I had of. In 2010, we won a bunch, won two championships and a bunch of races, and I should have just threw my helmet up at the end of the year, and we won the last race and went home. But I had to keep going, you know, you know how a racer is going. <laughs> oh, yeah. So much of your time now is spent on these incredible car rebuilds that you do. And you've already referenced, like, you know, the, 30, the 30-something, whatever, the 50-something, whatever. And I'm not talking... For the people out there at home listening to this, I'm not talking about cheap shit here. I'm talking about stuff that would be on the Barrett-Jackson floor, top-of-the-line stuff, you know, 59 Cameo pickups. People from all over the U.S. pay you top dollar to rebuild and, and restore these cars. I just got a bunch of questions about this. Now, what's the In your mind, what's the coolest one you've ever done? What's the best one of all these ones you've ever done? What's the, the, the coolest one you've ever done? Oh, a cameo is probably one of the nicest. Um, we did a '67 Chevy two for Jeremy Haddix, and that was that was it was the nicest car we've done, um, the coolest. Um, now I'd probably say that Chevy two because it was it was super nice. It was high dollar. It's it's. It, we were talking about it the other day, and he said, um, "I said, man, I said you need to take that thing to a couple of big shows." He said, yeah, it gets a lot of attention at the gas station. <laughs> I said, no, Trevor, you don't understand. I said, name something on that car that hasn't been modified and cut up and changed. And, yeah, you may be right. We talked about it, and I called him the next day, and I said, I thought of something we didn't change. He said, what's that? I said, it uses a 67, I said, it uses a 67 Chevy 2 headlight switch. <laughs> the headlight switch. And he said, I think that's it. But he said, we changed the knob and the headlight switch. We said, that don't count either. Uh, well, have you ever done any for famous people, Bill? Has anybody famous ever come to you and you've rebuilt one or no? Um, man, they're all famous to me. <laughs> no, I, no, I have not. Okay. I have not. And I don't know if you can answer this one. What's the most expensive one you've ever done? Can you put a price tag on one for Because I'm trying to get the listeners to understand this stuff is nice that you're rebuilding. Um, that Chevy too, he had a lot of work done on it before we started. Um, 
we spent, I mean, that was probably one of the biggest jobs that are the cameo. Uh, we built a 65 Chevy pickup before that. But one of those probably, I haven't actually added up everything that was in them. It's kind of scary when you do. Is it north of $100,000? Oh, yeah. 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 You can get that over in one. Pretty easy. Okay. Um, that, that Chevy, too, was, it's a really nice car. And he'd had a lot of work done at a shop in Louisiana. And he said they'd done a great job for a year or so. Then he said the one guy quit, another one took over, and he said he redid. Him or us redid everything that guy did for the next year. So. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, I could I could attack your career in a hundred different ways, but I wanted to start around the GRT days with you a little bit. You were certainly one of the people that put Joe Garrison and GRT on the map back in the day, and that's no disrespect to Joe, of course, but you were there, you know, at 92 to 96 era, era when it was really exploding. What was GRT like in 1992, Bill, as that company started to take off? Well, Joe called me. We won <laughs> we won that Oktoberfest in the fall of 91. We won the MLR championship in 91. Um, we won the Siloam Springs the night after the Oktoberfest. We went to Phoenix City. We always led it for 88 laps and blew a tire and almost had a flat, almost won it. Um, Garrison called me and he said, man, why don't you uh, sell your shop, move down here. I'll supply you with a pit crew, race cars. He said, all you got, you man, sell your parts at cost. He said, I'll give you a $25,000 sponsorship. That we should have. He said it should be twenty five thousand. He said if you'll just come down here and race out of my shop. He said I'll give your wife a job. He said you got a job if you can't make enough racing, you can work in the shop during the week to buy groceries. And I, I mean, like the, <clears throat> I guess I should have backed the story up a little bit. The week before the uh, Oktoberfest, <clears throat> I had to go borrow seven thousand dollars from the bank to fix a motor that I blew up at Eldora. And we re, we built this motor. Um, me and Carol finished putting it back together about four in the morning, put it in the car, started it. On the Thursday before we went to Oklahoma, we went to Oklahoma. We qualified, I think, second or fourth. I don't remember. We was, I think, second on the inside row for Thursday night and Friday night to qualify the outside row. So we didn't have to go back Friday night. So we went to Kilgore, Texas. They had a 2,000-win super show down there. We led it till five laps from the end <laughs> and blew a, broke a starter ring. But all I knew was the car shook and fire rolled, and I thought, man, I just blew up money, a motor. I got money barred on. I'm done. This is the end of my career right here. And I come back, and I see it cut a oil line in two, and it was just a flywheel ring. So we went, drove five hours back to Muskogee, Cleaned everything up. The next day, I got a barred, I think a flywheel ring and a fitting off. I barred a flywheel ring, I think, off window walls. And a fitting off somebody else. And we put the thing back together and we won 10 grand that night, 3,500 the next night. And I thought, you know, I might be able to make a living. <laughs> and so I went, to, I went down to Garrison's, um, shut my shop down, uh, sold it to a guy. Moved down to Garrison's, and I got down there, and I realized, I thought, well, man, at least I got some money now. If I have problems, I'll be all right. Hang back. I get down there, and he broke her nine. <laughs> I had more truck, more parts in my truck than he had in the shop. Uh... <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty rough there for a while. I mean, it was uh, it, it. I worked uh, all winter for him. Built two cars for myself and worked all winter for them in the shop. And one week he paid me a hundred hours to build cars. Wow. It's how hard we were working. And he, and I'm not taking anything away from him. He worked just as hard. He was right there with us. Some people forget though, like, you know, it's all, you know, rocket and everything else now, but those of us that have been around a long time and you being one of them, 92 through 2000, especially those early years. I mean, GRT was, was a skyrocket, wasn't it? And you were kind of leading the charge of that skyrocket. We built um, car number 89 and car number 100 that winter for me. <clears throat> and I think by 2000, the car I got from him in 2000 was 1800. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was rolling. I mean, it was. Yeah, it, I couldn't believe anything could go that big. And and Joe wasn't the most personable guy a lot of times. But me and Verdon were in the shop, and of course anybody can talk to Johnny Verdon. He can talk to anybody. <laughs> yes, he can. And yeah, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> it, it, he he made up for Joe. Do you? And have- I think Johnny. I think Johnny sold as many cars as Joe did. Do you have any funny stories of like, you know, you always hear these, and of course Joe's passed on now, and I don't want to talk about him uh, while he's not here, but, you know, Joe, I always hear these funny stories about Joe when financially things would start to roll really well. Joe wasn't afraid to mix it up and spend some of that money. Do you have any funny Joe Garrison stories of like, oh, he bought a boat, he bought a plane, he bought a car? I've heard some pretty famous things about Joe back in the day. Oh... Most of the stories I could tell you about Joe doesn't need to be told in public. <laughs> um, uh, he, he would, he would like. I took him to his first casino, and then everybody in racing that was around him knew he was uh, very, very big on gambling. Yeah, I like to gamble. Yes, he did. And I took him to his first casino, and never even thought anything about it. We were in, I don't know, Gulfport, Mississippi, and we got rained out. And somebody said, well, what do you got? What is there to do in Gulfport, Mississippi on a Friday or Saturday night? It's like, man, the only thing down there is casinos. I said, you know, I ain't never been to a casino. Let's go to the casino. And uh, he said, here, and just handed me $100. He said, here, he said, let's go. He said, here, you a 100 bucks to play on. And, man, I had no idea that would smoke a snowball into what he did. <laughs> I think that was one of the last times I spent a hundred dollars in a casino, and they ain't no telling how many hundred thousand he spent. <laughs> I've heard some legendary Joe Garrison casino tales down there in Biloxi and all those areas. I, he, um, yeah, I, I've, I've, again, we don't need to rehash it. Joe's not here to defend himself, so I don't want to go too far. But I, he liked it. He had card. I think cards, right? He loved to play cards. Do what now? Can we play cards, or was he a slots guy? I always heard he plays blackjack guy, right? He'd do it all. He'd sit and flip quarters for $1,000 in the shop. What's the biggest fight you and him ever had? I know you guys had some knockdown dragouts. What's the biggest fight you guys ever had? Me and him? Oh, we never actually came to physical anyway. We we never did. We got we had several arguments, um, a lot of cussing matches. <laughs> um Trying to think the, I guess the biggest one was when I was leaving, yeah. when I left down there. It was like he got really mad about that. It's like, man, I'm just trying to better myself, Joe. Be, you know, I ain't. Uh, and it was like he he took it really serious and like just the day I told him he quit speaking to, me. and I, and it wasn't no deal. And I still raced GRTs for another year after that. So I don't know. Hey, we got into it pretty big there. Um, I told him that day, what was it? Uh, oh, the bankers came through my shop one day, two or three bankers. And he was walking around and showing them and pointing. And when he left, and it was when I had the shop down there behind him. And I went up there later and I said, Joe, what are you bankers doing down there? Well, I said, I just showing them around. I said, I could tell by the way they was looking at stuff. They was appraising what I had down there, not what you had. I said, everything in that shop belongs to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he said, man, should I just use it a little bit? It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> and I said, Joe, I said, there may be a day. I said, everything in that shop's mine. I said, if you get to something, I don't remember what brought it on, but I told him I was going to duct tape him to one of the beams in that shop so he could watch <laughs> me carry everything out of there. <laughs> we, that was, we, other than that, other than yelling and screaming a few times, we, yeah. we were pretty calm. And then after I'd left for two or three years, we were up in South Dakota or Michigan or Minnesota somewhere. And he'd always walk down to the row, you know, and wish all his drivers good luck on the starting lineups. One day he's coming down through there and I just walked over and shook his hand. I said, Joe, I said, there ain't no reason. Two men that was as good of friends as we are. 500 miles from home, can't say hi to one another. He said, you're right, you're right, good luck. Walked on, that's the end of it. Yeah. Well, and I know, and, and tell me if I have this part wrong, Bill, and I have this in here. It's the last thing I want us to say about the GRT era. I know that you and him kind of had that falling out, and I remember it was either right after or right before he passed. 
I think, and I might have this wrong, did you put a post on Facebook or was somewhere where you said, hey, life's too precious to let bullshit get in the way, right? And that, you know, you and him hadn't spoken in a while. And I know you kind of were there at the end for him. And do I have that right? Or did you at least have that thought of, hey, this is this is all BS. And I just, we need to patch it up. This guy and I were too close for stuff, for bullshit like this. Yeah, I went and talked to him probably a month or two before he died. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, I caught him off guard, which it kind of explains why he was kind of speechless, but Joe didn't say a lot about that stuff anyway. But I just walked in and then we hadn't spoke for three or four years. I thought I'd never set foot in the place again after the last time we got into it over, a, and that was probably three years before that we got into it over some pricing on a modified that I bought off from him. And anyway, I told him I'd never set foot in the place again. And I didn't for three years. And I just walked in one day, one morning, and I said, Man, Joe, I said, uh, you've done me wrong. I feel like you've done me wrong a lot of times in my life. And I said, I'm sure you feel like I've done you wrong a lot of times in your life. But I said, I'm willing to forgive you of everything I think you did wrong to me. If you'll forgive me. And, did, and, and he paused a little bit. Yeah. Looked down and um stuck his hand out and said, Let's start new. I, I would imagine that moment meant a lot to you. It it did later, yes, especially later. Yeah. I'm really glad I did. I think it was good for both of us. One of the things that I loved about you, Bill, was to me, you really were one of the first guys to have this traveling spirit. You were not afraid to drive all the way across the country at some point in time. And a few examples, people forget, you won the 94 Hillbilly 100 in Pennsboro. That was really your first big kind of coming out win. I have a famous Bill Fry story I remember. I, I did this night with you. Of course, I wasn't literally with you, but I went to the same two races. You're going to have a Tampa race at Ducoin on a mile, and then that night you hightailed at the Hobstot and ran a nighttime race at a Hobstot. I just thought, I always feel about you, you had this willingness to pop up anywhere at any time on the map. I just, I feel like I'm right about that, right? That kind of made your career, this crazy psycho willingness to just drive anywhere at any time. I, I've told several people, I wasn't the greatest race car driver, but I had better hot rods than they had, and I worked harder than they did. And a lot of that was that traveling. Um, I mean, like the uh, Hillbilly 100 when we won that, we'd raced the night before at uh, whatever that horse track was in Kentucky. Thunder Ridge. Uh, Thunder Ridge. Thunder Ridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we raced there. Um, I think I might have slept an hour in the truck getting there the next day to get to the Hillbilly 100 when we won that race. I was war plumb out when we won that. And we ran second at that. Thunder Ridge race. I mean, that's just what we did. And if there had been a 2,000 to win in Mississippi the night after the Hillbilly 100, we'd have headed there. Do you, I always say this to you guys. You must just loved it so much. You didn't. I tell Moyer this all the time. Did you ever think, like, this is kind of crazy? I mean, you're driving from Pennsboro, West Virginia, to Mississippi, to, and it wasn't like you're racing for a hundred grand every night. Did you ever think, this is kind of nuts? <laughs> did you ever think that? Yeah. Um, I wondered a few times, and. My wife wondered a lot more. <laughs> I um, bet she did. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like, but it's like Petrov said. He said me and Billy Moyer um, paid for everything we had two thousand dollars at a time. <clears throat> Excuse me, paid for everything we had two thousand dollars at a time, winning those little races because we'd drive back and we'd race Mississippi on a Saturday night and drive seven hours to Monette to go win two thousand there. Yeah, on a Sunday night. I mean, it was just what we did. We'd drive three hours past our house to go race Monet. It was a big deal in Illinois when you would – I'm from Illinois, Central Illinois, Summer Nationals country. It was a big deal when you started coming up there. And I think part of your aura was your hauler, right? And I know you've uh, you've asked been asked a million questions about that hauler, but you were one of the first guys to have a decaled – decaled hauler right a fully branded awesome hauler and it was unique because it was that one part rig right it wasn't the two part rigs that everybody have now 
Just tell me a little bit about that hauler. I actually spoke with Johnny Verdon, and he had a hundred funny stories about that hauler. But that thing was uh, that thing became part of dirt late model legend, didn't it? That hauler that you guys built yourself. Well, I bought when I moved to GRT to Arkansas and, and started GRT. I bought their truck trailer, um, and I paid him the price he wanted. But I was supposed to get the sponsorship that was going to pay for it, and. The sponsorship fell through. They come to find out their sponsor had been embezzling, so that was out. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I ended up buying a truck, no money, borrowed the money for it, had to put a new motor and a new transmission in it because it didn't have enough to go all over the country. It had a local motor in it. So we put a new motor and transmission in it, and we hauled it all over the country, lost wheel bearings, lost trailer wheels, um, tra- rebuilt the transmission three times, had everything, had three different, I mean, I had finally had DeGase's 850 Holly double pumper off his drag car with four-corner idling on it to make the truck run. <laughs> and mad at it with no air cleaner on it. I mean, I just run it like that. It was, and I ran it like that for a season, and I thought, there's got to be something better than a gooseneck trailer to go to the races in. And at that time, there wasn't a whole lot more. There was a couple of toter homes, but actually, that was the first toter home that S and S ever built. Yeah. Um, they built it for garrisons. And, but anyway, and I drew out on a coffee table one night my duplex, a picture of this truck, and I drew a picture of the car and it scaled it all out and what the what what would fit here and where it would go, and I drew all this out and I told Garrison I was going to build this. And he said, no, man, that'll never work. You just need to go order you one of them toter homes. I said, I ain't got the money for one of them. I said, this will be handier. I said, I can get to more races quicker, easier, and race easier out of this. And he said, man, you'll never, that'll never, you can't get through parking lots. You'll be stuck. It'll be hung. And I, I got to build this. So I went hunting trucks. Me and Verdon drove around, and we bought a truck, come back. I cut the frame and true and lengthened it out, and we started building the box. I think I cut the frame and true and lengthened it before Christmas. And we drove it to Houston, Texas, either the first weekend in March or the last weekend in March. We drove it to Houston, Texas to a race. And it was like we worked 70 and 80 and 90 and 100 hours a week on it. I worked seven days a week, 14, 16 hours a day. Carol said if I ever started another one, she was leaving. <laughs> and we used it for 20 years. And um, which is unthinkable gotta, now, right? Nobody does that anymore. And you built this thing yourself. Think about the money you must have saved on that, right, by doing that. You know, I used it for 20 years and sold it for $5,000 more than I had in it when I built it. That's unbelievable. It, it, people have to ask you questions about that rig all the time. I mean, I've seen more pictures of that hauler than I have a lot of race cars. <laughs> uh, you know, and I had Bob Aiton from Springfield, Missouri. He lives in North Carolina now, paints hot rods and funny cars and stuff. But he was always a sign painter and custom car painter. He came down and he lettered it the first time and did all that. And it, it looked okay. It was good. I mean, it had gold leaf all down the side. It was it was pretty. And then he come back and. I got to thinking we needed to paint it. It set outside and the painted weather, you know, aluminum gets dull sitting outside. And of course we drove it through every truck washing chemicals <laughs> in the country to it killed it. So I uh, had hippie, um Gary Cooley worked at G R D and he was pretty artsy. Um Ron Fleeter said that Hippie took too many trips without a suitcase. Said. <laughs> I said, Hippie, I said, I need some drawings. I said, I want you to make me some drawings. I want to paint my truck like a motorhome. And I had pictured kind of like a, you know, a motorhome. Yeah. And some soft, subtle, earthy tones and stuff. Well, Hippie comes in with about three of these really beautiful renditions of what he wanted. He said, this is what you needed to look like. I said, man, Hippie, that's, that's pretty loud. He goes, man, I'm telling you, he said, he said, this one right here, he said, this is it. And I looked at it, and I said, man, that's a pretty cool hippie. He said, all right, he said, man, he said, and, and, and I paid him for doing the drawings, and then I called Bob Aiton, and I said, man, I said, I need my truck paint. He said, you get ready to paint. He said, I'll paint it. I said, man, I said, I need to show you a picture of it. I don't know, well, I don't even remember now how I got him a picture of it. He said, we can do that. He said, yeah, he said, it's going to take two weeks. 
He said, you get ready to paint. So he come down and he looked everything all over and we went to sanding and painting and primer and he comes back and he said, nah, it's nowhere near good enough. Start over. So we redone <laughs> everything again. And we got it all done and when he got done, he said it was like painting seven Chevelles. <laughs> oh, God. Just seven. No big deal. Just, just seven. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you pinstriped on it for three days. You you have been part of, Bill, some of the most spectacular moments in late model history, right? Like and I and I want to go through some of those here quickly. And most famously, obviously, the nineteen ninety seven Dirt Late Model Dream, right? You and Scott Bloomquist, everybody knows the story. Scott Bloomquist in essence takes you out. Obviously, the post-spin-out, what happened on the track, was as famous as what happened itself. You ramming into him uh, afterwards. when you, You're pissed off, right? You think, hey, Bloomquist took me out. I had the best car. I'm going to win hundred grand. Uh, then, of course, Steve Barnett and Jimmy Mars go on to have this unbelievable race. But really, everyone remembers the 97 dream for you and Scott. 23 years later, how do you feel about what happened that night? Do you think about it ever? or just It's been 23 years. How do you feel about it still? Oh, it's like I told Earl um, that night. Earl said, uh, I, had, I was up in his office, and he said, um, what the hell was you thinking when you was out there on the racetrack? <laughs> I said, I was thinking if I could get him pulled over, I was killing him. <laughs> uh, I said, no, I said, I, said, I said, if I get him out of the car, I was going to kick his ass. And uh, Earl goes, oh, man, son, that would have been a bad mistake. <laughs> and I said, why is that? I said, where I come from, you kill somebody for $100,000. I said, you don't, you don't know where I came from. But I said, where I come from, somebody takes 100000 from you, you kill them. And uh, he said, if you'd got out of that car, he said, no telling how many people got hurt. And I said, why? He said, we'd had a riot in the grandstands. <laughs> he said, that's all I can tell you. He said, it would have been a bad deal. But other than that, I, I should have just turned the car back around. Um, Started at the rear and won it from the rear. Your car was good enough that night to even if you had gone to the back, I still think you could have won that race. Do you? I mean, you regret it maybe a little bit, right? Yeah, I had a little regret there. Um, but I mean, uh, hey, it is what it is. The net, um, it, I mean, I, I say I could have. The car was broke. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know whether. We'll see. We'll never know. The the next year, of course, not only after that, but the famous thing the next year was Earl. You know, Earl was big on the PR stuff, right? And he had you guys bury the hatchet the next year. It's very famous hatchet burying ceremony you did. At the time, were you thinking, come on, Earl, what the hell? Do we really need to? Because you both participated, you and Scott. I remember being there, seeing it on Victory Lane. But were you thinking, Earl, we don't need to do this? Or what were you thinking about the bury the hatchet ceremony? I was thinking this was the biggest bullshit I'd ever seen in racing in my life. I thought this is the stupidest lowered that this is lowering myself to a low that I should have never have let happen. I should have walked out of Eldora at that moment and never went back. Why did you stay? Because I just never thought that was your style to do that. So it kind of surprised me you did. I guess you just wanted to race Eldora again, right? Um, you had to race Eldora at that time to be somebody. That's like. Petrov told me five years later, he said, I asked him, I said, man, I said, I don't really think I need to go to Eldora. I said, it pays uh, 5000 to win over here at um, uh, Harrisburg, Arkansas. I said, that's third place in the World 100. I said, I can go win this five grand. He goes, Fry, it don't matter whether you go to the World 100 or not. Everybody already knows who you are. <laughs> Good point. You ain't got nothing to prove there. And man, I won that race at Harrisburg like five years in a row, and it's like this is a money pick compared to Eldora. <laughs> I was. I'm glad to hear you say that about the bury the hatchet thing, because I and didn't somebody give you the hatchet like into a Bloomquist door? They took a Bloomquist door and buried the actual hatchet into the door. Don't you have that in your shop? Actually, a neighbor of mine down here that went, her husband went to the races somewhere was at one of these redneck auctions down here about five miles from my shop and i don't know who had them i wish i knew who had them but there was a she said there was that door and a 15 door which i'm going to take was probably burke off or francis yeah and said this one was this one brought like 20 bucks and she bought it, and he just brought it, and she said, he said, he said, she said to give this to you. <laughs> and it was hanging there in the shop. And 
sitting there on the bench, and Shane Burrell's one of the boys that was with me at Eldora when all that took place, and about got in a fight with some guy taking pictures. I don't remember the deal. He, I don't remember the whole deal, but it was it was bad. But anyway, uh, Shane said, "You ought to take a thirty out six and shoot that skull." <laughs> And uh, then sign that door and do something else because it had Scott's signature on it. And I said, nah. I said, yeah. I said, uh, all that stuff. I said, I ain't worried about that no more. The next thing I know, he comes over and he hands me that hatchet, which was hanging over on a trophy somewhere in the corner of the shop. He goes here. He said, bury the hatchet in that door. <laughs> I just, I just axed it right in the middle of the skull, and it hung in the shop for five, six, ten years. And uh. A guy called and seen a, a guy seen it in a picture on Facebook of the shop who's having a race car. Some guy in Tennessee, I forget his name, I'm terrible with names. He called me and he said, Have you got a door a Bill Fry door somewhere? And I said, Yeah. He said, What do you take for it? That Bloomquist door, the hatchet. And I thought a little bit. I shot him a prize. I thought, ah, this this will never go nowhere and he said, Send it to me. And it left. Was that that wasn't the actual hatchet though, was it that Earl gave you guys? That was a hatchet signed by Earl Bones. It was the actual one. Wow, God, I would have loved to have my hands on that, Bill. Oh man, it's in a guy's man cave somewhere uh, in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Maybe your next most famous incident: the 2001 Dirt Track World Championship. You have this mass wreck on the front stretch. Uh, obviously, you're pissed at Duke Wizent for this. Uh, you, you and Duke have a hell of a tussle on the front stretch. Um, I don't know if I'd call it as much of a tussle as you pulling him out of the car and, and taking care of business, but 19 years later, how do you feel about what happened that day on the front stretch at Pennsboro? That was, that was a bad <laughs> deal. Um, that was a third wreck he'd caused. They trying to start that heat race, and I was behind him, and I kept seeing him. I, I was watching what he was doing, and it was like, idiot, don't do this. And then he caused that big pileup, and I'm sitting there sideways in the front straightaway, so dusty you couldn't see anything, with my door facing traffic, and cars blowing by 100 mile an hour, and it's like, all I did was bow my head down and grip my teeth, thinking somebody's going to kill me. And then when the dust cleared and all them cars was piled up, and I looked, and he was one of three cars, I think, made it around the racetrack, made it through the wreck. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> And I thought, somebody needs to take care of this right here. I guess this is one of those times you just got to take it upon yourself to fix it. You know, so no, I do, not do, I do not regret that at all. Yeah, that one. Okay, stand behind that one. I got two more. Uh, and this one people might not know about, but I remember very vividly. The 1996 USA Nationals at Cedar Lake. You're leading, and you are running away with this race. Jack Boggs is a lap car, 14 laps to go, and Boggs just takes you out. Like, I vividly remember Box just dumping you. Cost you almost 30 grand. What do you remember about that night, and how do you feel about that one? Because I don't know that a lot of people remember that night. We actually um, started 18th in the B. That's feature. right. That's right. All the way from the tail of the B. Yep. Um, we had a really good car. Um, nobody had anything. We finished third. We'd lapped up to, third, to second place at that time. To third place, I guess. I'd lapped up to third place because I ran third after that. And uh, I'm going to treat Jack like you did Joe Garrison. He's not here to defend himself, but let's just say Jack had a lot of problems at that time in his life. Yeah. And did you cut him some slack because of that, you think? Or. You didn't, I mean, because obviously, you know, the Duke incident and the Bloomquist incident were pretty famous, but I don't remember you ramming Boggs or anything, you know? You didn't seem as mad, and I would have been as pissed about the other two, I thought, if I was in your shoes. Yeah, it was... Man, I just just tried to finish that one, I guess. Yeah. I I was mad about it, but uh, that was one good thing about Cedar Lake is when the races are over, there's a thousand people in the pits around you. Yeah. And that probably cooled it down. Cooled it down. <laughs> yeah. um, um, and there was security everywhere that night. So same year, yeah. 1996. This is my last one on these races. You've been part of just these amazing moments. 1996 topless 100. You win the race, but you're not the first one that shows up in victory lane. Scott Bloomquist is in victory lane because he thinks he's won the race. He didn't know when you passed him. He thought you were lapped. His crew was telling him you were lapped, but you blow by him. 
what the hell did Bill Fry think when he goes to the winner's circle and Bloomquist is already there because he thinks he's won the race? I knew I'd won it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I knew I drove by him, so it, it didn't. I mean, unless, and I, unless they could come up with some way to disqualify me, I knew I had it won. I wasn't worried. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> did, did Scott rant and rave at you at all or no? Nope. He, I don't think he spoke. <laughs> I don't think he even spoke about it. Last couple you know, of things. Like he turned around and cussed out his crew guy <laughs> and drove off. Last couple of things, Bill. One of the more and I, I, this is the question I'm most excited about asking you. One of the most famous rumors in the history of dirt late model racing was that you had a four wheel drive race car in the mid 1990s. I'm not going to tell you who, but I had multiple people tell me, oh yeah, he did. He for sure did. He had a four-wheel drive car. Fry won a lot of races with that car. But they also said, Fry is never going to admit to you, Michael, that he had that car. So I'm gonna, it's it's 10.56 a.m. on a Friday morning. Can Bill Fry admit that he had a four-wheel drive race car, or you give me a story? That would be an amazing engineering feat if a person could do that. <laughs> And I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Bill Fry happens to be an amazing engineer. So, maybe? <laughs> you're not going to give me anything on this, are you? All right. Nope. God damn, these people that I talk to know you all too I like well. The, let's say I like the rumors. <laughs> I like that. All right. I'll leave it there. I had a couple follow-ups, but damn, I want to press you on this. I, I respect you too much to push it, but uh, I like that you're being a little coy about it. I will say that. But everybody told me you wouldn't say anything about it. Damn it, they know you, don't they? <laughs> I always thought that your car was one of the best-looking Dirt Late models of all time, the yellow, the orange, the blue. But what I found out was it's fascinating to me. That wasn't supposed to be, was it? That was just a bunch of parts you put together that made that. And Garrison hated that car, didn't he? He thought it was ugly, but I thought it was beautiful. But it was that was just spare parts made that colors up, didn't they? I don't remember where. We were in Missouri when I came up with that. And I didn't have a lot. I think I actually was out of sheet metal. I mean, we didn't keep sheet metal at the race car shop hardly at all. But I had some I had some orange there that was off Elmer Guthrie's street stock. I had some yellow there that was off of uh, my late model. Um, I had some blue off another guy's street stock. And I had some red there off of some, some other. I don't remember what I done red. And I had some of that there, and he's like, well, let's put some yellow quarter panel on. We started <laughs> an orange, and we started. We just started doing it there. And then I got to GRT in '91, late '91, early '92. I had the car put together there in the shop bare, and the paint rep, the PPG paint rep, came in, and he's standing there talking, and he's looking around. And he goes, "Wow," he said. "What about that car?" And I said, "Yeah, what about that one?" He said, "Man," he said, "Is that guy color blinders?" He built that out of the scrap pile. <laughs> and I uh, said, man, I don't know. Uh, I said, you know whose it is? And he said, no. I said, that's mine. <laughs> he goes like, oh, and he never walked. He never came back to GRT. Uh, I, when I heard that story, I was like, that because I love that car, man. I thought it was such a good looking car. And somebody told me, yeah, you know, that was like not on purpose, right? They just threw a bunch of shit together. <laughs> Oh, that's great. And I, I want to do some true or false questions to end this with you. I always end these interviews with true or false. Uh, first question, Bill, true or false. You were a famous horse trader back in the day, meaning that you guys, all you GRT guys and the Jack Sullivans in the world and Bill Fry and Wendell Wallace, you guys all, you swapped, you sold, you traded parts. Someone told me that literally in his life, Bill Fry has never lost a trade. He's undefeated lifetime. Is that true or false? Oh, yeah, I've lost a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I lost a lot. That was not the consensus. The consensus was that you whooped their ass in every one of them and you knew it. That's what they all told me. No, no, no. I, I, I was trained by a real horse trader. My dad was a cattle trader, and I was trained by him. But I, I would never had. I never was anywhere near as good as him. All right, okay. he, he was good at it. You know, I'd, I'd fail occasionally. You, I could usually make it come out. I could, I could polish up a turd and do something with it. But that was, <laughs> that was about it. All right, I, again, d differing stories there. But I, I'm, I'm going to respect you and trust you on that one. True or false? Joe Garrison built a car for you one time. You guys took it to Speed Weeks. 
I heard that you were so unhappy with the car, you literally tore the entire thing down in the parking lot to the last bolt and rebuilt it in the parking lot of a Speed Weeks racetrack or a hotel. Is that true or false? Actually, it was in the pits at Volusia County. <laughs> okay, the Not Volusia. Pits. It was in the pits at Valdosta, Georgia. <laughs> so just you were pissed. You just didn't like it, right? And, and rebuilt it. Yeah, um, Charles Morgan, who Morgan Dollar Trucking, owned a big business in Conway, and he had the road race shop in the shop between my shop and Joe Garrison's race cars in GRT. He rented that shop off Joe, and they had the road race stuff in there. And he was a very intelligent man. Well, he got this program and designed this car, this front end that was going to revolutionize dirt track racing. So we made spindles, A-frames, welded bungs on this car. I put this whole front end on it, and it was a contraption. It was different than anything else. Had sweet make us a rack. Had a different rack. It, it was it was pretty radical. And we raced at uh, Brunswick and a couple of other nights, and it was terrible. And Verdon was actually in it that night, I think, at Valdosta. And the next, I think we practiced it at Valdosta, and the next day... We get there, and we're talking about it, and it rains there. Next thing I know, we're torching the rack plate and stuff off the car. We, we, we cut it up in the pits and welded it back together. Uh, I love that. That is a fantastic story. Uh, next one, true or false? Every time Jack Sullivan, and you worked a lot with Jack back in the day, every time Jack built something for you, you had to go back and redo it. Maybe not because Jack did a bad job, but just because you were very particular about the way things were built and handled. Is that true or false? Oh, I didn't redo everything, Jack. Um, I'd redone everything everybody done. <laughs> um, my, my my kids say it. Mm-hmm. You just don't know what, how how hard it is to live with me. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. I, I was just that way with my race cars. There was forever. I wouldn't let anybody change my gears. I mean, it was like it was probably ninety two or three before I didn't let anybody else change gears. It was like I had to do it all. I had to make sure everything was right. I built my own motors. We done all that stuff. I mean, it was, it was. I guess I was that anal about everything. And I, I might have heard that. I used the term particular, Bill. You were particular, not anal. You were. I, I get accused of the same thing on the broadcasting side, so I can appreciate somebody who's particular. Uh, there you go. True. Last last couple things here. True or false? I think you're. You mentioned your father had the most badass name ever. Your dad's name was Fonzo Fry. I think that's the coolest name ever, true or false. <laughs> uh, I always did. I, that was, I always thought that was cool. They called him, uh, everybody called him Fonzo, Lonzo, Gonzo. Um, all his friends called him Doc. So, I don't know. He didn't even have a middle initial. I asked him why. I said, Dad, how come you, they called you Fonzo? And he said, I was the 14th out of 15 kids. He said, they was out of names when they got to me. Wow. Four, I didn't realize your grand, your father had 15, 14 brothers and sisters. Holy cow. And he left home when he, he was born to a drunk moonshiner in a two-room cabin with no floor in it. And that was in Squires, Missouri. Is that right, Bill? Yep. And he left home when he was 11, rode a freight train to Montana when he was 14, and was a successful farmer, cattle trader, dairy farmer, had three farms. Wow. Multiples rented and everything else when he died. How old was your father when he passed away? When, what year was that, Bill? He passed away in 97 and was 78. Wow. And did you, are you in contact with all those brothers and sisters still, all those aunts and uncles? I'm sure some of them have passed, obviously, but... Um, he was one of the youngest. Um, okay. There's one that's 90. Sam is 90-some years old, and I see him every year at a family reunion, but they canceled it for this year. I sure. Think, so I may, not, it's, I may have to go see him some other time. Man, I could do a whole other hour with you on the family. That's an amazing story about your father. Um, that, I didn't realize that there was that many aunts and uncles for you. Um, yeah. L- he, he, he put this... Um, Work ethic in me, I guess you could say. And you you mentioned right, if somebody takes a hundred grand for you, you you kill them was the exact term you used. That's just your upbringing, right? Where you lived, you probably. And I'm just, I don't want to assume, but you guys didn't have a lot growing up, so that a hundred thousand dollars is a lifetime worth of money. Is the, the the point you're making? 
Oh yeah, that that was to me at that time, and I mean, and that's the way we was the way I was raised. I mean, they had a big war on milk, uh, dairy pricing, and milk pricing, and one big milk company boycotted and wouldn't sell, and Dad was Dad was selling milk to the other one, and he carried a gun. I mean, he carried a gun, wore the handles off a pistol, carrying it around through that deal. But I mean, it's uh, he he was raised in the era of you done what you had to do to get what you needed. You mean to tell me your dad wouldn't think it's all that big of a deal that we have to sit at home and watch Netflix right now? This guy lived through the Great Depression. He's probably looking at this generation going, everybody calm, calm down, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't even think about it. He, he, wouldn't even, he wouldn't even be worried about this virus. So. Yeah. Last last true or false, one of one of my favorite things in late model racing, and I know it was one of your favorite things too, back in the day you'd love to come to Fairbury, my home track, and they would do the running of the blankets at Fairbury when people would stampede to get over each other. True or false, that was one of your favorite things to watch in late model racing back in the day, wasn't it? I loved that place. I mean, I didn't <laughs> race in there. It, it was it – was, I wasn't crazy about the racetrack, the mud and stuff, the way you'd have to start out. The feature, you could always race good on it. Um, I loved racing the features there. I just hated getting to the features. <laughs> but man, them people, the crowds at Fairbury, um, Farmer City, I, I just loved racing up in there. All the way, the Summer Nationals, that's what made it. Yeah. There was all the crowds up through Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa. It was the crowds, and I loved that. It was, it was like, to me, that was the greatest times in my life racing. And they were some of my best memories of racing is that mid-90s. It's just a romantic era in late model racing, isn't it? There's something really romantic about the mid What is it, Bill? Why do we all like that time so much? I don't know. It was like, um, I don't know. I always told myself it's because we felt like we could win wherever we went. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I just, it was... Um, well, somebody said once, said, I told somebody, I said, we got money in the box. Let's go race. Yeah. We don't have to do this. Some of the words, uh-huh. the last things I want to ask you, some of the, the words you used to describe to you when I talked to all your friends, hard-nosed, didn't take shit from anybody, very fair, great heart. He came from nothing and really made something out of himself. One of the best people I've ever met. Those are just some of the words that people used to describe to you. Um, that's not a bad list, is it? If you're looking back on your legacy in racing, that's a pretty damn good list. Yeah, it is. Thank you. And I mean, the hard nose and stuff. Yeah, I ain't real proud at over some of that. And it's, it's. I probably could have been a nicer guy to a lot of people and different things. And it's like I told my wife, I'm. She she's told me I'm too honest. <laughs> Um, I, I can't compliment someone if they don't need it. I mean, that's, I have problems with stuff like that, so I don't know. That's, uh, I, I have tried to be fair with everybody and give them what they, what they deserve and more. My goal in my business is to make sure uh, I give somebody more than they expect. Well, and I think you've done that. And we did a full hour. This hour flew by. I told you it was going to be 30 minutes, but I know once we got to talking, it was going to... It was going to fly by. I can't thank you enough, Bill. I, our subscribers are going to go go wild for this interview. They're going to love it. Um, I've had so many people reach out to me and say, you got to interview Bill Fry. You just have to. And you were one of those, you know, as a teenager in the mid-1990s, as a 10, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid in Illinois, when that rig rolled in, I don't have the words for you, man. When I would see that Bill Fry rig, it meant like, it was like, oh, shit, this is a big race now. Uh, you, you know, you I think you helped you helped make me into the guy that I am now as far as a fan of racing. And I personally just wanted to tell you, thank you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now that makes my career worth it. I mean, I really, that's, um, I don't know. I think we all do this somewhat for fame and fortune and, uh, the fortune wasn't really there. I mean, it has been really good to me. I'm not going to complain about that. Racing was good to me, but, uh, the fame and someone like you telling me something like that makes me feel better than anything. Well, I really appreciate it, Bill. Th- thank you so much for this, man. I know you probably got a 60-something-something something to rebuild right now, so I don't want to keep you from it. But thanks for the hour, man. I really appreciate it. How does PPM Racing consistently produce such high-quality parts? They start with a good, strong design. Then they make it out of the highest-quality American materials, and they use the smartest, strongest techniques. PPM does this with every part they make, every time they make one, 
So when you're using PPM parts, what you'll have is just built better than anything else you're using. That's PPM. Obviously, a huge thank you to Bill Fry for joining us. The Rigsby Report will be off and running again during the next month. I've got a lot of guys and some ladies, too, that I actually want to hit. Hopefully, everybody is enjoying my picks so far, but I... And I got a special place in my heart for this Bill Fry interview. I think it was was absolutely incredible. So thanks again to him for doing it. Uh, don't forget to DOD and Flow Racing, as my buddy Wags used to say, my my college roommate. We got buttloads, buttloads of content on both websites right now. We have kept you more than entertained and informed during the coronavirus. And and most exciting is seriously, man, real racing. We have real race cars this week. At the very least, real race cars. We can see them. We can taste them. We can smell them. Tri-County Speedway in North Carolina this Thursday, live on DOD and on Flow for all the subscribers. No pay-per-view. Just have to be a subscriber to both. Actual human beings in actual race cars. We'll see you this weekend, guys. Thanks.